You're listening to Stories from Among the Stars, our anthology series that shares thrilling science fiction audio stories, but only for a limited time. Our most recent season, The Three-Body Problem by Cixin Liu, will be available to listen to or download until September 10th. But before that, we have one more special bonus clip to share with you. In addition to The Three-Body Problem and its sequels, Cixin Liu is also the author of the short story collection, The Wandering Earth, coming out this October. If you enjoyed The Three-Body Problem, you're going to love The Wandering Earth, too. Keep listening to hear the title story from The Wandering Earth. Enjoy! The Wandering Earth Chapter 1 The Breaking Era I have never seen the night. I have never seen the stars. I have never seen spring, fall, or winter. I was born as the Breaking Era ended, just as the Earth stopped turning. It had taken 42 years to halt the Earth's rotation, three years longer than the Coalition had planned. My mother told me about the time our family watched the last sunset. The sun sank very slowly, as if stuck on the horizon. It took three days and three nights to finally set. Of course, afterward, there was no more day or night. The eastern hemisphere was shrouded in perpetual dusk for a long time, maybe a decade or so. The sun lay just below the horizon, its glow filling half the sky. During that endless sunset, I was born. Dusk did not mean darkness. The earth engines brightly illuminated the whole northern hemisphere. They had been installed all across Asia and North America. Only the solid tectonic plate structure of these two continents could withstand the enormous thrust they exerted. In total, there were 12,000 engines scattered across the Eurasian and North American plains. From where I lived, I could see the bright plasma beams of hundreds of engines. Imagine an enormous palace, as big as the Parthenon on the Acropolis. Inside the palace, countless massive columns rise up to the vaulted ceiling, each one blazing with the blue-white light of a fluorescent tube. And you, you are just a microbe on the palace's floor. That was the world I lived in. Actually, that description was not totally accurate. It was the tangential thrust component generated by the engines that halted the Earth's rotation. Because of this, the engine jets needed to be set at a very precise angle, causing the massive beams to slant across the sky. It was like the grand palace that we lived in was teetering on the verge of collapse. When visitors from the southern hemisphere were exposed to the spectacle, Many of them suffered panic attacks. But even more terrifying than the sight of the engines was the scorching heat they produced. Temperatures reached as high as 70 or 80 degrees Celsius, forcing us to don cooling suits before we stepped outside. The heat often raised torrential storms. When a plasma beam pierced the dark clouds, it was a nightmarish scene. The clouds would scatter the beam's blue-white light, throwing off frenetic, surging rainbow halos. The entire sky glowed as if covered in white-hot lava. My grandfather had grown senile in his old age. One time, tormented by the implacable heat, he was so overjoyed to see a downpour arrive that he stripped to the waist and ran out the door. We were too late to stop him. The raindrops outside had been heated to boiling point by the superheated plasma beams, and his skin was scalded so badly that it sloughed off in large sheets. 
To my generation, born in the Northern Hemisphere, all of this was perfectly natural. Just as the sun, stars, and moon had been natural to the people who lived before the breaking era. We called that period of human history the anti-solar era. And what a captivating golden age it had truly been. When I started primary school, as part of the curriculum, our teachers led our class of 30 children on a trip around the world. By then, Earth had completely stopped turning. Except for maintaining this stationary state, the Earth engines were only being used to make small adjustments to the planet's orientation. Because of this, during the three years from when I was three until I turned six, the plasma beams were less intensely luminous than when the engines were operating at full capacity. It was this period of relative inactivity that allowed us to take a trip to gain a better understanding of our world. First, we visited an Earth engine up close. The engine was located near Shijiazhuang by the entrance to the railway tunnel that ran through the Taihang Mountains. The great metallic mountain loomed over us, filling half the sky. To the west, the Taihang mountain range seemed like a series of gentle hills. Some children exclaimed that it must be as tall as Mount Everest. Our head teacher was a pretty young woman named Ms. Stella. She laughed and told us that the engine was 11,000 meters tall, 2,000 meters taller than Mount Everest. People call it God's blowtorch, she said. We stood in its massive shadow, feeling its tremor shake the earth. There were two main types of earth engines. Larger engines were dubbed mountains, while smaller ones were called peaks. We ascended North China Mountain 794. It took a lot longer to scale mountains than peaks. It was possible to ride a giant elevator straight to the top of a peak, but the top of a mountain could only be reached via a long drive along a serpentine road. Our bus joined an endless procession of vehicles creeping up the smooth steel road. To our left, there was only a blank face of azure metal. To our right, a bottomless chasm. The traffic mostly consisted of massive 50-ton dump trucks laden with rubble from the Taihang Mountains. Our bus quickly reached 5,000 meters. From that height, the ground below appeared blank and featureless, washed out by the bluish glare of the earth engine. Miss Stella instructed us to put on our oxygen masks. As we drew closer to the mouth of the plasma beam, the light and heat increased rapidly. Our masks grew shaded, and the microcompressors in our cooling suits whirred to life. At 6,000 meters, we saw the fuel intake port. Truckload after truckload of rocks tumbled into the dull red glow of the gaping pit, consumed without a sound. I asked Ms. Stella how the earth engines turned stones into fuel. Heavy element fusion is a difficult field of study. Too complex for me to explain it to you at this age, she replied. All you need to know is that the earth engines are the largest machines ever built by humankind. For instance, North China Mountain 794, where we are now, exerts 15 billion tons of thrust upon the earth when operating at full capacity. Finally, our bus reached the summit. The mouth of the plasma beam was directly above us. The diameter of the beam was so immense that when we raised our heads, all we could see was a glowing wall of blue plasma that stretched infinitely into the sky. At that moment, I suddenly recalled a riddle posed to us by our philosophy teacher. You are walking across a plain when you suddenly encounter a wall, our haggard teacher had said. The wall is infinitely tall and extends infinitely deep underground. It stretches infinitely to the left and infinitely to the right. What is it?
a cold shiver washed over me. I recited the riddle to Miss Stella, who sat next to me. She teased it over for a while, but finally shook her head in confusion. I leaned in close and whispered the riddle's dreadful answer in her ear. Death. She stared at me in silence for a few seconds, and then hugged me tightly against her. Resting my head on her shoulder, I gazed into the far distance. Gargantuan metal peaks studded the hazy earth below, stretching all the way to the horizon. Each peak spat forth a brilliant jet of plasma, like a tilted cosmic forest, piercing our teetering sky. Soon after, we arrived at the seashore. We could see the spires of submerged skyscrapers protruding above the waves. As the tide ebbed, frothing seawater gushed from their countless windows, forming cascades of waterfalls. Even before the breaking era ended, its effects upon the earth had become horrifyingly apparent. The tides caused by the acceleration of the earth engines engulfed two-thirds of the northern hemisphere's major cities. Then, the rise in global temperatures melted the polar ice caps, which turned the flooding into a catastrophe that spread to the southern hemisphere. Thirty years ago, my grandfather witnessed giant hundred-meter waves inundating Shanghai. Even now, when he described the site, he would stare off into space. In fact, our planet had already changed beyond recognition before it even set out on its voyage. Who knew what trials and tribulations awaited us on our endless travels through outer space? We boarded something called an ocean liner, an ancient mode of transportation, and departed the shore. Behind us, the plasma beams of the Earth engines grew ever more distant. After a day's travel, they disappeared from view altogether. The sea was bathed in light from two different sources. To the west, the plasma beam still suffused the sky with an eerie bluish glow. To the east, rosy sunlight was creeping over the horizon. The competing rays split the sea in two, and our ship sailed right along the glittering seam where they met on the surface. It was a fantastic sight. But as the blue glow retreated and the rosy glow strengthened, unease settled over the ship. My classmates and I were no longer to be seen above deck. We stayed hidden away in our cabins, blinds pulled tight across the portholes. A day later, the moment we most dreaded finally arrived. We all gathered in the large cabin that we used as a classroom to listen to Miss Stella's announcement. Children, she said solemnly, we will now go to watch the sunrise. No one moved. Every pair of eyes was fixed in a glassy stare, as if abruptly frozen to the spot. Miss Stella tried to urge us from the cabin, but everyone sat perfectly still. One of the other teachers remarked, I've mentioned it before, but we really ought to schedule the global experience trip before we teach them modern history. The students would adapt more readily. It's not that simple, Miss Stella replied. They pick it up from their surroundings long before we teach them modern history. She turned to the class monitors. You children go first. Don't be afraid. When I was young, I was nervous about seeing my first sunrise too. But once I saw it, it was just fine. Finally, we stood up and one by one trudged out through the cabin door. I suddenly felt a small clammy hand clasp my own and looked back to see Linger. I'm scared, she whimpered. We've seen the sun on TV before. It's the same thing, I assured her. How can it be? Is seeing a snake on TV the same as seeing a real live one? 
I did not know how to reply. Well, we have to go look anyway, otherwise we'll be marked down. Linger and I gripped hands tightly as we gingerly made our way to the deck with the other children. Stepping outside, we prepared to face our first sunrise. In fact, we only began to fear the sun three or four centuries ago. Before that, humans were not afraid of the sun. It was just the opposite. In their eyes, the sun was noble and majestic. The earth still turned on its axis back then, and people saw the sun rise and set every single day. They would rejoice at sunrise and praise the beauty of sunset. Miss Stella stood at the bow of the ship, the sea breeze playing with her long hair. Behind her, the first few rays of sunlight shot over the horizon, like breath expelled from the blowhole of some unimaginably colossal sea creature. Finally, we glimpsed the soul-chilling flame. At first, it was just a point of light on the horizon, but it quickly grew into a blazing arc. I felt my throat close up in terror. It seemed as if the deck beneath my feet had suddenly vanished. I was falling into the blackness of the sea, falling. Linger fell with me, her spindly frame quivering against mine. Our classmates, everyone else, the entire world even, all fell into the abyss. Then I remembered the riddle. I had asked our philosophy teacher what color the wall was. He told me that it was black. I thought he was wrong. I always imagined the wall of death would be bright as fresh snow. That was why I had remembered it when I saw the wall of plasma. In this era, death was no longer black. It was the glare of a lightning flash. And when that final bolt struck, the world would be vaporized in an instant. Over three centuries ago, astrophysicists discovered that the conversion rate of hydrogen to helium in the interior of the sun was accelerating. They launched thousands of probes straight into the sun to investigate, and eventually developed a precise mathematical model of the star. Using this model, supercomputers calculated that the sun had already evolved away from the main sequence on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Helium would soon permeate the sun's core, triggering a violent explosion called a helium flash. Afterward, the sun would become a massive, cool-burning red giant, swelling until its diameter encompassed the Earth's orbit but our planet would have been vaporized in the preceding helium flash long before then. All of this was projected to occur in the next 400 years. Since then, 380 years had passed. This solar catastrophe would not only raise and consume every inhabitable terrestrial planet in the solar system, it would also completely transform the composition and orbits of the Jovian planets. After the first helium flash, as heavy elements reaccumulated in the sun's core, Further runaway nuclear explosions would occur repeatedly for a period of time. While this period represented only a brief phase of stellar evolution, it might last thousands of times longer than all of human history. As long as we remained in the solar system, humanity stood no chance of surviving such a catastrophe. Interstellar emigration was our only way out. Given the level of technology available to humanity at the time, the only viable target for this migration was Proxima Centauri. It was the star closest to our own, a mere 4.3 light-years away. Reaching a consensus on a destination was enough. The real controversy lay in how to get there. In order to reinforce the lesson, our ship doubled back twice on the Pacific, giving us two sunrises. By then, we were accustomed to the sight and no longer needed to be convinced that children born in the southern hemisphere could actually survive daily exposure to the sun. 
We sailed on into the dawn. As the sun rose higher in the sky, the cool ocean air of the past few days retreated and temperatures began to rise. I was drifting off to sleep in my cabin when I heard a commotion outside. My door opened and Linger stuck her head in. Hey, the leavers and takers are at it again. I could not have cared less. They had been fighting for the last four centuries. Even so, I got up to take a quick look. Outside, a group of several boys were fighting. One glance told me Tongue was up to his usual tricks again. His father was a stubborn leaver, and he was still serving a prison sentence for his part in an uprising against the coalition. Tongue was a chip off the old block. With the help of several brawny crewmen, Ms. Stella managed to pull the boys apart. Despite a bloody nose, Tongue still raised a fist and shouted, Throw the takers overboard. I'm a taker. Do you want to throw me overboard too? Asked Miss Stella. I'll throw every single taker overboard. Tongue refused to yield. Global support for the takers had been rising of late, and they had grown unruly again. Why do you hate us so much? Asked Miss Stella. Several Lever children immediately shouted in protest. We won't wait to die on Earth with you taker fools. We will build spaceships and depart all hail spaceships. Miss Stella pressed the holographic projector on her wrist. An image immediately materialized in the air before us, arresting our attention. We quieted down for a moment. The hologram showed a crystal clear glass sphere. The sphere was about 10 centimeters in diameter and two-thirds full of water. It held a small shrimp, a branch of coral, and a bit of green algae. The shrimp swam languidly around the coral. This is a project Tung designed for his natural science class, said Miss Stella. In addition to the things you can all see, the sphere also contains microscopic bacteria. Everything inside the sphere is mutually interdependent. The shrimp eats the algae and draws oxygen from the water, and then it discharges organic matter in its feces and exhales carbon dioxide. The bacteria break down the shrimp's waste into inorganic matter. The algae then use the inorganic matter and carbon dioxide to carry out photosynthesis under an artificial light source. They create nutrients, grow, and reproduce, and release oxygen for the shrimp to breathe. As long as there is a constant supply of sunlight, the ecological cycle in the glass sphere should be able to sustain itself in perpetuity. This is the best design by a student I have ever seen. I know that this sphere embodies Tung's dream and the dreams of all Lever children. It is the spaceship you long after in miniature. Tung told me he designed it according to the output of rigorous mathematical models. He modified the genes of every organism to ensure their metabolisms would be perfectly balanced. He firmly believed that the little world inside the sphere would survive until the shrimp reached the end of its natural lifespan. The teachers all adored this project. We placed it under an artificial light source at the required intensity. We were persuaded by Tung's predictions, and we silently wished the tiny world he had created would succeed. But now, less than two weeks later, Miss Stella carefully withdrew the real glass sphere from a small box. The shrimp floated lifelessly at the surface of the murky water. The decaying algae had lost any hint of green and had turned into a dead, woolly film that coated the coral. The little world is dead. Children? Who can tell me why? Miss Stella raised the lifeless sphere so that everyone could see it. It was too small, 
Indeed, it was too small. Small ecosystems like this, no matter how precisely designed, cannot endure the passage of time. The spaceships of the Leavers are no exception. We will build spaceships as large as Shanghai or New York City, Tung objected, his voice much quieter than before. Yes, but anything larger is beyond the limits of human technology. And compared to Earth, those ecosystems would still be much too small. Then we will find a new planet. Even you leavers don't really believe that, replied Miss Stella. There are no suitable planets in orbit around Proxima Centauri. The nearest fixed star with inhabitable planets is 850 light years away. At present, the fastest spaceship we can build can only travel at 0.5% of the speed of light, which means it would take us 170,000 years to get there. A spaceship-sized ecosystem would not last for even one-tenth of the voyage. Children, only an ecosystem the size of Earth, with its unstoppable ecological cycle, could sustain us indefinitely. If humanity leaves Earth behind, she proclaimed, then we would be as vulnerable as an infant separated from its mother in the middle of a desert. But, tongue paused, Miss Stella, it's too late for us and too late for Earth. The sun will explode before we accelerate and get far enough away. There is enough time, she replied firmly. You must believe in the coalition. How many times have I told you? Even if you don't believe, at the very least we can say, humanity dies with pride, for we have done everything that we could. Humanity's escape was a five-step process. First, the Earth engines would generate thrust in the opposite direction of the Earth's movement, halting its rotation. Second, operating at full capacity, the engines would accelerate the Earth until it reached escape velocity, flinging it from the solar system. Third, the Earth would continue to accelerate as it flew through outer space toward Proxima Centauri. Fourth, the engines would reverse direction, restarting the Earth's rotation and decelerating gradually. Fifth, the Earth would enter into orbit around Proxima Centauri, becoming its satellite. People called these five steps the Breaking Era, the Deserting Era, the First Wandering Era, during acceleration, the Second Wandering Era, during deceleration, and the neo-solar era. The entire migration process was projected to last 2,500 years, over 100 generations. The ocean liner continued its passage toward the part of the Earth shrouded in night. Neither sunlight nor the glow of the plasma beams could be seen here. As the chilly Atlantic breeze nipped at our faces, for the first time in our young lives, we saw the stars in the night sky. God, it was a heartbreakingly beautiful sight. Miss Stella stood with one arm around Linger and I. Look, children, she said, pointing to the stars with her other hand. There is Centaurus, and that is Proxima Centauri, our new home. She began to cry, and we cried along with her. All around us, even the captain and the crew, hardened sailors all, began to well up. With tearful eyes, everyone gazed in the direction in which Miss Stella pointed, and the stars shimmered and danced. Only one star held steady. It was the beam of a distant lighthouse over dark and stormy seas, a flicker of fire beckoning to a lonely traveler freezing on the tundra. That star had taken the place of the sun in our hearts. It was the only pillar of hope for 100 future generations as they navigated a sea of troubles.
On our voyage home, I saw the first signal for Earth's departure. A giant comet appeared in the night sky, the moon. Because we could not take the moon with us, engines had been installed on the lunar surface to push it out of Earth's orbit, ensuring that there would be no collision during the acceleration period. The sweeping tail of the lunar engines bathed the sea in blue light, obscuring the stars. As it moved past, the moon's gravitational pull raised towering breakers. We had to transfer to a plane to fly home to the northern hemisphere. The day of departure had finally arrived. As soon as we disembarked, we were blinded by the glare of the Earth engines. They blazed many times brighter than before, no longer slanted, but pointing straight toward the sky. The engines were running at maximum power. The planet's acceleration created thunderous hundred-meter waves that battered every continent. Blistering hurricanes howled through the towering columns of plasma, whipping up boiling froth and uprooting whole forests. Our planet had become a gigantic comet, its blue tail piercing the darkness of space. Earth was on its way. Humanity was on its way. My grandfather passed away just before departure, his burnt body ravaged by infection. In his final moments, he repeated one phrase over and over. Ah, Earth. My wandering Earth. Chapter 2. The Deserting Era. Our school was scheduled to relocate to an underground city, and we were among its first inhabitants. Our school bus entered a massive tunnel, which sloped gently downward into the earth. After driving for half an hour, we were told that we had entered the city, but nothing outside the bus windows resembled any city I had seen before. We whipped past a labyrinth of smaller side tunnels and countless sealed doors set back into cavities in the walls. Under the row of floodlights mounted to the tunnel ceiling, everything assumed a leaden blue tinge. We could not help but feel dejected at the realization that, for most of the remainder of our lives, this would be our world. Primitive humans lived in caves, and now so will we. Linger said this quietly, but Ms. Stella still caught her words. It can't be helped, children, she sighed. The surface will soon become a terrible, terrible place. When it is cold, your spit will freeze before it hits the ground. When it is hot, it will evaporate even as it leaves your lips. I know it'll be cold because Earth is traveling away from the sun, but why will it get hot? Asked a little girl from one of the lower grades. Idiot. Haven't you studied transfer orbits? I snapped. No. Linger launched into a patient explanation, as if to dispel her sorrowful thoughts. It's like this. The Earth engines aren't as powerful as you think. They can accelerate Earth a little bit, but they can't just push it out of its solar orbit straight away. Before Earth escapes the sun, we still need to orbit it 15 times. Through these 15 orbits, Earth will gradually accelerate. Right now, Earth's orbit around the sun is pretty much circular, but as it speeds up, it will become increasingly elliptical. The faster we move, the flatter the ellipse grows, and the more the sun will be shifted toward one end of the orbit. So when Earth is furthest from the sun, naturally it will be very cold. But that's still not right. It will be cold when Earth is far away from the sun, but on the other end of the ellipse, its distance from the sun will be... <sighs> Let me think. The girl chewed on her lip. Orbital dynamics says Earth won't be any closer to the sun than it is now, so why would it get hotter? 
She truly was a little genius. Genetic engineering had made this type of exceptional memory the new norm. Humanity was quite fortunate in this respect. Otherwise, unimaginable miracles like the Earth engines could not have been realized in the span of four centuries. Don't forget about the Earth engines, dummy, I chimed in. Over 10,000 of those giant blowtorches are on full blast. Earth is basically just a ring to hold the rocket nozzles. Now be quiet. I'm getting annoyed. We began our new lives underground. Located 500 meters below the surface, our city had space for over 1 million residents. Many others just like it were scattered across every continent. Here, I finished primary school and entered secondary school. My schooling concentrated on science and engineering. Art, philosophy, and other subjects deemed inessential had been minimized or removed from the curriculum. Humanity had no time for distractions. It was the busiest era in human history. Everyone had work to do, and the work was never finished. Interestingly, every world religion had vanished without a trace overnight. People finally realized that if God truly existed, he was a real bastard. We still studied history, but to us, the anti-solar era of human history seemed as mythical as the Garden of Eden. My father served in the Air Force as an astronaut. He frequently flew low-Earth orbit missions and was rarely at home. I remember in the fifth year of orbital acceleration, when Earth was at Aphelion, we took a family trip to the seashore. Aphelion Day was a holiday, like New Year's Eve or Christmas. As Earth entered the part of its orbit furthest from the sun, everyone basked in a false sense of security, though. We still needed to wear special thermal suits to go to surface. Instead of cooling suits, we donned sealed heating suits powered by nuclear batteries. Outside, we were nearly blinded by the Earth engine's towering plasma beams. The harsh light eclipsed our view of the surface world, and it was difficult to tell if the landscape had changed at all. We had to fly for a long time in our car before we escaped the glare and we could actually see the shore. The sun had shrunk to the size of a baseball. It hung motionless in the sky, surrounded by a faint dawn-like halo. The sky was the deepest blue we had ever seen, and the stars were clearly visible. Looking around, I fleetingly wondered where the ocean had gone. There was now only a vast, white, icy plain stretching to the horizon. A large crowd of revelers had gathered atop the frozen sea. Fireworks whistled through the darkness. Everyone was carousing with unusual abandon. Drunken partygoers rolled across the ice, while others belted out the words to a dozen different songs, each trying to drown out the competing voices around them. Despite it all, everyone is living their own lives. No harm in that, my father said approvingly. He paused, suddenly remembering something. Oh, I forgot to tell you, I've fallen in love with Stella Lee. I want to move out to be with her. Who is she? My mother asked calmly. My primary school teacher, I answered for him. I had started secondary school two years ago and had no idea how my father knew Ms. Stella. Maybe they had met at my graduation ceremony? Then go, said my mother. I'm sure I'll grow tired of her soon enough. I'll come back then. Is that okay by you? If you want to, certainly. Her voice was as calm and even as the frozen sea. But a moment later, she bubbled with excitement. Oh, that one is beautiful. It must have a holographic diffractor inside. She pointed to a firework blossoming in the night sky, genuinely moved by its beauty. Movies and novels produced four centuries ago were baffling to modern audiences. 
It was incomprehensible to us why people in the anti-solar era invested so much emotion into matters that had nothing to do with survival. Watching the hero or heroine suffer or weep for love was bizarre beyond words. In this day and age, the threat of death and the desire to escape overrode everything else. Nothing but the most current updates on the solar state and position of Earth could hope to move us or even hold our attention. This hyper-focus gradually changed the essence of human psychology and spirituality. Humans paid scant attention to affairs of the heart, like a gambler taking a swig of water, unable to tear his eyes from the roulette wheel. Two months later, my father returned from his jaunt with Ms. Stella. My mother was neither happy nor unhappy to see him. Stella has a good impression of you, my father told me. She said you were a very creative student. Who said that? My mother asked with a puzzled expression. My primary school teacher, Ms. Stella, I replied impatiently. Dad was living with her for the last two months. Oh, I remember. She shook her head and laughed. Not even 40 yet and my memory is already shot. She looked up at the holographic stars on the ceiling and the forest on the walls. It's good to have you home. Now you can switch up these images. Your son and I are sick of looking at them, but we don't know how to work the darn thing. By the time Earth began its fall back toward the sun, we had all entirely forgotten the episode. One day the news reported that the ocean had begun to thaw, so we took another family trip to the seashore. Earth was just passing through Mars's orbit. The available sunlight should not have significantly raised temperatures, but the Earth engines ensured the surface was warm enough to thaw the sea ice. It felt delightful to step outside without the encumbrance of a thermal suit. The Earth engines still lit up the sky in our hemisphere, but on the other side of the planet, people could really feel the sun's approach. Their sky was clear and pure blue, and the sun was as bright as it had been before departure. But from the air, we spotted no signs of a thaw. We saw only a white expanse of ice. Disappointed, we got out of our car. Just as we closed the doors, we heard an earth-shaking rumble that seemed to rise from the very depths of the planet. It sounded like the earth was about to explode. That's the sound of the ocean, my father shouted over the noise. The sharp rise in temperatures is heating the thick ice unevenly. It's like an earthquake on land. Suddenly, a sharp noise like a thunderclap pierced the low rumble eliciting cheers from the people watching the sea behind us. I saw a long crack appear, shooting across the frozen ocean like a black fork of lightning. The rumbling continued as more fissures appeared in the ice. Water gushed from the cracks, forming torrents that rushed across the icy plain. On the way home, we looked out over the desolate land below and saw broad tracks of wild grass sprouting from the earth. All kinds of flowers had burst into full bloom and withered forests were mantled in tender green leaves. Life was throwing itself into the business of rejuvenation, as if there was no time to lose. Every day the earth drew closer to the sun, dread knotted itself tighter in our stomachs. Fewer people made the trip to the surface to admire the spring scenery. Most of us retreated into the depths of the underground city, not to avoid the approaching heat, torrential rains, and hurricane-force winds, but to escape the creeping terror of the sun. One night after I had already gone to bed, I overheard my mother tell my father in hushed tones, maybe it really is too late. The same rumor was going around during the last four perihelions, he replied. But this time it's true, she insisted. I heard it from Dr. Chandler. 
Her husband is an astronomer on the Navigation Commission. You all know him. He told her that they have observed accelerated rates of helium concentration. Listen, my dear, we mustn't give up hope. Not because hope is real, but because we have to conduct ourselves nobly. In the anti-solar era, nobility required wealth, power, or talent. But now one just needs hope. It is the gold and jewels of this age. No matter how long we live, we must hold on to it. Tomorrow we'll tell our son the same thing. Like everyone else, I felt restless and uneasy as the perihelion approached. One day after school, I found myself in the city's central plaza. I stood by the round fountain in the middle of the plaza, looking down at the glittering water in the pool, and then up at the ethereal ripples of light reflected on the domed ceiling. Just then I noticed Linger. She was holding a little bottle in one hand and a short length of tubing in the other. She was blowing soap bubbles, her eyes blankly following each string of bubbles as they drifted away. She watched them vanish one by one, only to blow another stream. You still like blowing bubbles at your age? I asked, walking over. Linger looked pleased to see me. Let's take a trip. Take a trip? Where? To the surface, of course. She swept her hand through the air, using the computer on her wrist to project a hologram of a beach at sunset. A gentle breeze stirred the palm trees, and white surf lapped at the shore. Pairs of lovers dotted the yellow sand, black silhouettes against the gold-flecked sea. Mona and Dagang sent me this. They've been traveling all over the world. They said it's not too hot on the surface. It's so nice out. Let's go. They were just expelled for cutting class, I objected. Linger sniffed. That's not what you're really afraid of. You're afraid of the sun. And you're not? You had to see a psychiatrist because of your heliophobia. I'm a different person now. I've been inspired. Look, said Linger, using the tube to blow another stream of soap bubbles. Watch closely, she pointed to the bubbles. I singled out a bubble, examining the waves of light and color surging across its surface. The iridescent patterns too complex and intricate for humans to process. It was as if the bubble knew it would lead a short life and was frantically broadcasting the myriad dreams and legends of its prodigious memory to the world. A moment later, the waves of light and color vanished in a silent explosion. For a half second, a tiny wisp of vapor remained, but then that too was gone, as if the bubble had never existed at all. See? The Earth is a cosmic soap bubble. One pop, and it's gone. So what is there to be afraid of? But it won't happen like that. It's been calculated that after the helium flash, it will take 100 hours before the Earth is completely vaporized. That's exactly the scariest part, Linger cried. 500 meters underground? We're like meat stuffing in a pastry. First we'll be slowly cooked through, and then we'll be vaporized. A cold shiver ran down my entire body. But it won't be like that on the surface. Everything will be vaporized in the blink of an eye. Anyone up there will be like soap bubbles. One pop and... She trailed off. So I think it would be better to be on the surface when the flash hits. I couldn't say why, but I did not go with her. She went with tongue instead, and I never saw either of them again. But the helium flash never happened. Earth swept past perihelion and climbed toward aphelion for the sixth time. Humanity breathed a collective sigh of relief. 
Because Earth no longer rotated, at this point in its orbit around the Sun, the Earth engines installed in Asia faced into the planet's direction of flight. As a result, the engines were completely powered down, save for occasional adjustments to the Earth's orientation. We sailed into a quiet, endless night. In North America, however, the engines were operating at full capacity, the continents securing the rocket nozzles to the planet. Because the Western Hemisphere also faced the sun, the heat there was devastating. Grass and trees alike went up in smoke. Earth's gravity-assisted acceleration progressed like this year after year. When the planet began its ascent toward aphelion, we unwound proportionally to the Earth's distance from the sun. At the new year, when the planet began its long fall toward the sun, we grew tenser with each passing day. Each time Earth reached perihelion, rumors swirled that the helium flash was imminent. The rumors would persist until Earth climbed again toward aphelion. But even as people's fears subsided, as the sun shrank in the sky, the next wave of panic was already brewing. It was like humanity's morale was dangling from a cosmic trapeze. Or perhaps it was more accurate to say that we were playing Russian roulette on a planetary scale. Every journey from perihelion to aphelion and back was like turning the chamber. Passing the perihelion was like pulling the trigger. Each pull was more nerve-wracking than the last. My boyhood was spent alternating between terror and relaxation. Come to think of it, even at aphelion, Earth never left the danger zone of the helium flash. When the sun exploded, Earth would be slowly liquefied, which was a fate considerably worse than being vaporized at perihelion. In the deserting era, disaster followed disaster in quick succession. The changes in velocity and trajectory generated by the Earth engines disturbed the equilibrium of Earth's iron-nickel core. The turbulence passed through the Gutenberg discontinuity and spread to the mantle. As geothermal energy escaped to the surface, volcanic eruptions ravaged every continent, which posed a lethal threat to humanity's underground cities. Beginning in the sixth orbital period onward, catastrophic magma seepage events occurred all too frequently in cities around the world. On the day it happened, I was on my way home from school when the siren sounded. It was quickly followed by an emergency broadcast from City Hall. Attention, citizens of City F-112. The city's northern barrier has been breached by crustal stress. Magma has entered the city. Magma has entered the city. Magma flows have already reached Block 4. Highway exits have been sealed off. All citizens should report to the Central Plaza and evacuate by lift. Please note that the evacuation will be conducted in accordance with Article 5 of the Emergencies Act. I repeat, the evacuation will be conducted in accordance with Article 5 of the Emergencies Act. Looking around the labyrinth of tunnels, our underground city seemed eerily normal. But I was aware of the immediate danger. Of the two subterranean highways that led out of the city, one of those routes had been blocked off last year by necessary fortification work on the city's barriers. If the remaining route was also blocked, we could only escape through the vertical elevator shafts that led directly to the surface. The carrying capacity of the lifts was very limited. It would take a long time to move all 360,000 residents to safety, but there was no need to scramble for a place on the lifts. The Coalition's Emergency Act had made all necessary arrangements for the evacuation. Past generations once grappled with an ethical dilemma. A man is faced by rising floodwaters and can only save one other person. Should he save his father or his son? In this day and age, it was unbelievable that the question had ever been raised at all. 
When I arrived at the plaza, I saw that people had already begun to arrange themselves in a long line according to age. At the front of the line, closest to the lifts, stood robotic nurses, each cradling an infant. Then came the kindergartners, followed by the primary school students. My place was in the middle of the line, still rather close to the front. My father was on duty in low Earth orbit, leaving only my mother and myself in the city. Unable to see her, I began to run along the unending line of people, but did not get far before I was stopped by soldiers. I knew she stood at the very back. Our city was primarily a university town, with only a few families, so she was grouped with the city's oldest residents. The line inched forward at an excruciating pace. After three long hours, it was finally my turn, but I felt no relief as I boarded the lift. There were still 20,000 university students standing between my mother and survival, and I could already smell the strong odor of sulfur. Two and a half hours after I made it to the surface, magma inundated the entire city 500 meters beneath my feet. A knife twisted in my heart as I imagined my mother's final moments, standing alongside 18,000 others who could not be evacuated in time. She would have watched magma surge into the plaza. The city's power supply would have failed, leaving only the dreadful crimson glow of the magma. The intense heat would have blackened the lofty white dome over the plaza. The victims likely never came into contact with the magma before the thousand-plus degree temperatures proved fatal. But life went on. And even in this harsh, terrifying reality, sparks of love still flew from time to time. During the twelfth climb toward the Felian, in an attempt to ease public tension, the coalition unexpectedly revived the Olympic Games after a two-century hiatus. I competed at the Games in the snowmobile rally. Beginning in Shanghai, athletes raced their snowmobiles across the frozen surface of the Pacific to New York. At the sound of the starting gun, more than a hundred snowmobiles shot off across the frozen ocean, blazing across the ice at 200 kilometers per hour. At first, there was always a competitor in my sights. Two days later, however, having fallen behind or surged ahead, they had all disappeared over the horizon. The glow of the earth engines was no longer visible behind me, and I sped into the darkest part of the planet. My world was the boundless starlit sky and the ice that stretched in all directions to the ends of the universe. Or perhaps this was the end of the universe. And in this universe of infinite stars and endless ice, I was alone. As an avalanche of loneliness overwhelmed me, I wanted to cry. I drove as if my life depended on it. Whether or not I placed on the podium was beside the point. I needed to get rid of this terrible loneliness before it killed me. In my mind, the opposite shore no longer existed. At that moment, I saw a figure silhouetted against the horizon. As I grew closer, I realized it was a woman. She was standing next to her snowmobile her long hair fluttering in the icy wind. The moment our paths crossed, it was clear that the rest of our lives had been decided. Her name was Yamasaki Kayoko, and she was Japanese. The women's team had set off 12 hours before us, but her snowmobile had been caught in a crack in the ice, snapping one of the skis. As I helped her repair her sled, I shared with her the feeling that had gripped me earlier. I felt exactly the same way, she exclaimed. It was like I was alone in the universe. You know, when I saw you appear in the distance, it was like watching the sunrise. Why didn't you call a rescue plane? 
I asked. She raised her small fist. This race embodies the human spirit, she declared with a tenacity so characteristic of the Japanese. We must remember that Earth cannot call for help as it wanders through the cosmos. Well, now we have to call. Neither of us has a spare runner, so your snowmobile is beyond repair. Why don't I ride on the back of yours? She suggested. If you don't care about placing, that is. I really did not care, so Kayoko and I made the rest of the long journey across the frozen Pacific together. As we passed Hawaii, we saw a glimmer of light on the horizon. On this boundless expanse of ice, illuminated by the tiny sun, we submitted an application for a marriage license to the Coalition Department of Civil Affairs. By the time we reached New York City, the Olympic referees had grown tired of waiting and had packed their things and left. But an official from the Municipal Bureau of Civil Affairs stood waiting for us. He congratulated us on our marriage and then began to perform his official duty. With a sweep of his hand, he summoned a hologram that was neatly lined with tens of thousands of dots. Each dot represented a couple that had registered for marriage with the coalition in the last few days. In light of harsh environmental conditions, by law, only one out of every three newly married couples was permitted to procreate. This right was awarded by lottery. Faced with thousands of dots, Kayoko hesitated for a long time before picking one in the middle. When the dot turned green, she jumped for joy. I was not sure how I felt about the prospect of starting a family. If I brought a child into this era of suffering, would it be a blessing or a calamity? The official, at least, was over the moon. He told us it was always a happy occasion when a couple got their little green dot. He pulled out a bottle of vodka, and the three of us took turns drinking from it, toasting the continuation of the human race. Behind us, the faint light of the distant sun gilded the Statue of Liberty. Before us, the long-abandoned skyscrapers of Manhattan cast long shadows over the quiet ice of New York Harbor. Feeling tipsy, I realized tears had begun to stream down my cheeks. Earth. My wandering Earth. Before we parted ways, the official handed us a set of keys and hiccuped. These are for your newly allotted house in Asia. Run along home now. Run to your wonderful new home. Just how wonderful is it? I asked coldly. Asia's underground cities are fraught with danger. But of course you Westerners wouldn't know that. We are about to face our own unique hazard, he replied. Earth is about to pass through the asteroid belt, and the Western Hemisphere is facing right toward it. But we passed through the asteroid belt on the last few orbits. It's no big deal, is it? We just swipe the edges of the asteroid belt. Space fleet could handle that, of course. They have lasers and nukes to clear small rocks from the Earth's path. But this time... He paused. Haven't you seen the news? This time Earth will pass straight through the middle of the belt. The fleet will deal with the small rocks, but the large ones... On the flight back to Asia... Kayoko turned to me and asked, Are those asteroids very big? My father was one of the space fleet officers tasked with asteroid diversion and destruction. Therefore, though the government had imposed the usual media blackout to prevent mass panic, I still had some idea of what was about to happen. I told Kayoko that some of the asteroids we faced were the size of mountains. Even 50 megaton thermonuclear bombs would only pockmark their surfaces. They'll have to use the most powerful weapon in the human arsenal, I added mysteriously. You mean antimatter bombs? 
she asked. What else could it be? What is the fleet's cruising range? Currently, their strength is limited. My dad told me it extends out to about one and a half million kilometers, I answered. Kayoko gave a little squeal. Then we'll be able to see it. That's not the look. But Kayoko did look, and she did so without protective glasses. The first flash of an antimatter bomb arrived from space shortly after we took off. At that exact moment, Kayoko had been admiring the starry sky outside the window. The flash blinded her for over an hour, and her eyes were red and watery for more than a month afterward. In the blood-curdling moments that followed the flash, the antimatter shells continued to bombard the asteroid. Ruinous flashes pulsed across the pitch-black sky, as if a horde of colossal paparazzi had descended upon the planet and were frenziedly snapping away. Half an hour later, we saw the meteors, dragging streaming tails of fire across the sky, mesmerizing in their terrible beauty. More and more meteors appeared, each streaking further into the atmosphere than the last. Suddenly, a deafening roar shook the plane, immediately followed by more rumbling and shaking. Thinking that a meteor had struck the plane, Kayoko screamed and threw herself into my arms. Just then, the captain's voice came on over the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not be alarmed. That was merely the sonic boom created by a meteor breaking the sound barrier. Please put on your headphones to avoid permanent hearing loss. Because the safety of the flight cannot be guaranteed, we will make an emergency landing in Hawaii. As the announcement ended, my eyes fastened on a meteor much larger than the others. I became convinced it would not burn up in the atmosphere like the ones before it. Sure enough, the fireball hurtled across the sky, shrinking as it fell, and smashed into the frozen ocean. Seen from 10,000 meters above, a small white spot appeared at the point of impact. The spot immediately spread into a white circle and rapidly expanded across the ocean's surface. Is that a wave? asked Kayoko, her voice trembling. Yes, it's a wave over a hundred meters high. But the ocean is frozen solid. The ice will soon dampen it, I replied, mostly to comfort myself. I did not look down again. We landed in Honolulu not long after. The local government had arranged to take us to an underground city. The drive along the coast afforded us a clear view of the meteor-filled sky. It was as if a legion of fiery-haired demons had burst all at once from a single point in space. We watched as a meteor struck the surface not far from the coast. There was no visible plume of water, but a white mushroom cloud of water vapor bloomed high overhead. Beneath the frozen surface, roiling seawater surged toward the shore. The thick layers of ice groaned as they splintered apart, rolling like waves as if a school of giant sinuous sea monsters was swimming beneath the surface. How big was that one? I asked the official who had met us at the airport. Less than five kilograms, no bigger than your head. But I've just been informed that a 20-ton meteor is splashing down 800 kilometers north of here. His wrist communicator began beeping. He glanced at it and immediately told the driver, We won't make it to gate 204. Head for the nearest entrance. The van turned a corner and pulled to a stop in front of an entrance to the underground city. As we got out, we saw that several soldiers guarded the entrance. They stared unblinkingly into the distance, eyes filled with terror. We followed their gaze to the horizon and saw a black barrier. At first glance, it looked like a low bank of clouds, but its height was too uniform for clouds. 
It was more like a long wall stretching across the horizon. Closer inspection revealed that the wall was edged in white. What is that? Kayoko asked an officer timidly. His answer made our hair stand on end. A wave. The tall steel gates to the subterranean city grated shut. Ten minutes later, we felt a deep rumble emanate from the ceiling, as if a titan were rolling about on the surface up there. We gazed at each other in speechless despair, for we knew at that moment hundred-meter waves were rolling over Hawaii and on toward the mainland. But the quakes that followed were even more terrifying. It was as if a giant fist were pummeling Earth from outer space. Underground, the assault was faint, but we felt each tremor keenly in our souls. It was the barrage of meteors against the surface. The brutal bombardment of our planet continued on and off for a week. When we finally left the underground city, Kayoko cried, My God, what happened to the sky? The sky was a muddy gray. The upper atmosphere was filled with the dust that had been kicked up by the asteroid collisions. The sun and stars were lost in this endless gray, as if the entire universe was blanketed in thick fog. On the ground, the seawater left in the wake of the monstrous waves had frozen solid. The surviving high-rises stood isolated above the ice, cascades of ice spilling down their sides. A layer of dust had settled on the ice, draining all color from the world except for that all-pervading gray. Kayoko and I soon resumed our voyage back to Asia. As the plane crossed the international dateline, which had long since ceased to matter, we witnessed humanity's darkest night. The plane seemed to cruise silently through the inky depths of the ocean. As we gazed through the windows, searching in vain for a glimmer of light in the gloom, our moods turned equally black. When will it end? Kayoko murmured. I did not know if she meant our journey or this lifetime of misery and suffering. I was beginning to think there was no end to either one. Indeed, even if Earth sailed beyond the blast radius of the helium flash, even if we escaped with our lives, then what? We stood on the bottom rung of an immeasurably tall ladder. In a hundred generations, when our descendants reached the top and glimpsed the promise of new life, our bones would have long turned to dust. I did not imagine the suffering and hardships yet to come, much less consider leading my lover and my child down that endless muddy road. I was so tired, too tired to go on. Just as sorrow and despair threatened to suffocate me, a woman's scream rang through the cabin. Oh, no, darling, you can't. I turned and saw a woman wrest a gun from the hands of the man sitting next to her. He had just attempted to put the muzzle of the gun against his own temple. The man looked wan and emaciated, his eyes staring listlessly into the distance. The woman buried her head in his lap and broke into little chirping sobs. Be quiet, the man said coldly. The sobbing stopped, leaving only the low hum of the engines, like a steady funeral dirge. In my mind, the plane was stuck in the vast gloom, motionless. There was nothing else left in the entire universe except for the plane and the enveloping darkness. Kayoko pressed herself tightly into my embrace. Her entire body felt ice cold. Suddenly, there was a commotion at the front of the cabin, and people began whispering excitedly. I looked out the window and saw a hazy light in front of the plane. 
the dust-filled night sky was uniformly suffused with a formless blue glow. It was the light of the Earth engines. One third of the Western Hemisphere's engines had been destroyed by meteoroids, but Earth had sustained less damage than the calculations had projected before departure. The Earth engines in the Eastern Hemisphere, sheltered on the reverse side of the impact surface, had suffered no losses. In terms of power, Earth remained well-equipped to make its escape. When I laid eyes on the dim blue light ahead, I felt like a deep-sea diver finally seeing the sunlit surface after a long ascent from the abyss. I began to breathe steadily again. From a few rows away, I heard the woman's voice. Darling, pain, fear. We can only feel these things while we are alive. When we die, there is nothing at all, only darkness. It is better to live, don't you think? The emaciated man did not reply. He was staring at the blue light up ahead, tears rolling down his face. I knew he would live through this. Just as long as that hopeful blue light still shone, we would all live through this. I remembered my father's words of hope. When we touched down, Kayoko and I did not go directly to our new underground home. Instead, we went to look for my father at the Space Fleet's base station on the surface. When we arrived at the station, however, I found only a Medal of Honor, posthumously awarded in ice cold. The medal was presented to me by an Air Vice Marshal. He told me that my father had lost his life during the operation to clear the asteroids from the Earth's path. An antimatter explosion had blasted an asteroid fragment straight into his single-seater craft. When it happened, the rock was traveling at 100 kilometers per second relative to his ship. The cabin was vaporized on impact. He felt no pain, said the air marshal. I assure you, he felt no pain at all. When Earth began its fall back toward the sun again, Kayoko and I traveled to the surface to see the spring scenery. We were sorely disappointed. The world was still a monochromatic gray. Under the overcast sky, frozen lakes of residual seawater dotted the landscape. There was not a single sprig of green to be seen. The great pall of dust in the atmosphere blocked the light of the sun, preventing temperatures from rising again. The oceans and continents did not thaw even at perihelion. The sun remained a faint, dim presence, like a specter lurking behind the dust. Three years later, as the dust in the atmosphere dissipated, Humanity made its last pass through perihelion. As we reached it, those living in the Eastern Hemisphere were privileged to witness the fastest sunrise and sunset in Earth's history. The sun leapt up from the sea and streaked rapidly across the sky. Shadows changed directions so quickly that they looked like second hands sweeping across the faces of countless clocks. It was the shortest day Earth had ever seen, over in less than an hour. When the sun plunged below the horizon and darkness fell across the planet, I felt a twinge of grief. This fleeting day seemed like a brief summary of Earth's four and a half billion year history in the solar system. Even until the end of the universe, Earth would never return. It's dark, Kayoko said sadly. The longest night, I replied. In the Eastern Hemisphere, this night would last 2,500 years. 100 generations would pass before the light of Proxima Centauri illuminated this continent anew. The Western Hemisphere was facing its longest day. But even so, 
it would last just a moment compared to our age-long night. On that side of the world, the sun would quickly rise to its zenith, where it would remain motionless, steadily shrinking. Within half a century, it would be difficult to distinguish from any other star. The Earth's intended trajectory called for a rendezvous with Jupiter. The Navigation Commission's plan was as follows. The Earth's 15th orbit around the Sun would be so elliptical that its aphelion would enter Jupiter's orbit. Earth would brush past Jupiter on a near-collision course, harnessing the gas giant's enormous gravitational pull to assist its acceleration. Earth would finally attain escape velocity. Two months after Earth passed perihelion, Jupiter became visible to the naked eye. At first, it appeared as a dim point of light, but it soon flattened and became disc-shaped. After another month, Jupiter had grown as large as the full moon, reddish-brown with faintly visible banding. Then some of the Earth engine's plasma beams, which had remained perpendicular for 15 years, began to shift. Final adjustments were being made to Earth's orientation before the rendezvous. Jupiter sank slowly below the horizon, where it stayed for the next three months. We could not see it, but we knew the two planets were converging upon each other. It almost came as a surprise when we heard that Jupiter was visible again in the Eastern Hemisphere. Everyone thronged to the surface to take a look. When I passed through the airlock of the underground city, I saw that the Earth engines, after running continuously for 15 years, had been powered down. We could see the stars in the sky once again. Our final rendezvous with Jupiter was in progress. Everyone peered nervously toward the western sky, where a dim red glow was beginning to show above the horizon. The glow swelled until it filled the entire skyline. I soon realized that the red expanse had formed a neat border against the stars. It was an arc so massive that it spanned from one end of the horizon to the other. As it slowly rose, the sky beneath it turned red, as if a velvet theater curtain were being drawn across the rest of the universe. I let out a gasp, reeling from the realization that the curtain was Jupiter. I knew that Jupiter was 1,300 times the size of Earth, but only when I saw its immense splendor did I truly take in its colossal size. It was difficult to describe in words the fear and oppression that accompanied the behemoth as it reared above the horizon. One reporter later wrote, I did not know if I was in my own nightmare or if the whole universe was just a nightmare in the enormous, twisted mind of that deity. As Jupiter continued its terrible ascent, it gradually came to occupy half the sky. We then had an unobscured view of the storms raging in its cloud layers, which whipped the gases in the atmosphere into chaotic, disorienting lines. I knew that beneath those thick decks of clouds lay seething oceans of liquid hydrogen and liquid helium. The famous Great Red Spot appeared, still raging across Jupiter's surface after hundreds of thousands of years. The maelstrom was large enough to swallow three Earths. Jupiter now filled the entire sky. Earth was like a balloon floating on Jupiter's boiling red sea of clouds. The Great Red Spot climbed to the middle of the sky and stared down upon our world like a cyclopean eye. The entire landscape was shrouded in its ghastly light. It was impossible to believe that our tiny planet could escape the gravitational field of this colossus. From the ground, it even seemed unimaginable that Earth might become a satellite of Jupiter. No, we would certainly plummet into the hell concealed beneath that unending ocean of clouds.
but the navigational engineer's calculations were faultless, and the bewildering ruddy sky continued to drift past us. After some time, a black crescent appeared on the western horizon and swiftly widened to reveal the twinkling stars. Earth was breaking free from Jupiter's gravitational clutches. Just then, sirens began to wail, announcing that the gravitational tide Jupiter had raised was rushing back inland. We were told later that giant waves reaching over 100 meters high had again swept across the continents. As I ran toward the gates of the underground city, I stole one last glance at Jupiter, which still occupied half the sky. Distinct scoring marred the gas giant's cloud layer, which I later learned was the trail left by the gravitational pull of Earth on Jupiter's surface. Our planet, too, had left mountainous breakers of liquid helium and hydrogen in its wake. At that point, the Earth, accelerated by Jupiter's mighty gravity, was hurled into deep space. As it departed Jupiter, Earth reached escape velocity. It no longer needed to return toward the sun, where only death lurked. As it hurtled toward the open reaches of space, the endless wandering era began. And under the dark red shadow of Jupiter, deep within the Earth, my son was born. Chapter 3. Rebellion. After we left Jupiter behind, Asia's 10,000 Earth engines roared to life again. They would operate at full capacity for the next 500 years, constantly accelerating the planet. During those 500 years, the engines would consume half of the mountains on the Asian continent as fuel. Freed at last from the fear of death after four centuries, humanity breathed a collective sigh of relief. But the expected revelry never took place, and what happened next was beyond anyone's imagining. After our subterranean city's celebratory rally concluded, I donned my thermal suit and ascended to the surface alone. The familiar mountains of my childhood had already been leveled by mega-excavators, leaving only bare rock and hard-frozen soil. The bleak emptiness was broken by patches of stark white covering the land as far as the eye could see the salt marshes left behind by the great ocean tide. Before me, the city in which my father and grandfather had lived out their days, a city once home to ten million, lay in ruins. In the blue light of the earth engine's plasma beams, the exposed steel skeletons of skyscrapers dragged long shadows behind them, like the fossilized remains of prehistoric beasts. The chronic floods and meteor strikes had destroyed virtually everything on the surface, all that humankind and nature had wrought over millennia lay in ruins. Our planet had been rendered as barren and desolate as Mars. Around this time, Kyoko grew restless. She often left our son unsupervised while she took the car on long flights. When she returned, she would say only that she had gone to the Western Hemisphere. Finally, one day, she dragged me along with her. We drove for two hours at Mach 4 before we caught a glimpse of the sun. It had just risen above the Pacific Ocean. No bigger than a baseball, it cast a faint cold light over the frozen surface. At an elevation of 5,000 meters, Kyoko shifted the car into hover. She then pulled a long package from the back seat. After she removed its cover, I saw that it was an astronomical telescope of the sort favored by hobbyists. Kyoko opened the car window, pointed the telescope at the sun, and told me to look. 
Through the tinted lens, I could see the sun, magnified hundreds of times. I could even clearly see the light and dark sunspots slowly drifting across its surface and the faint prominences at the edges of the solar disk. Kayoko linked the telescope to the onboard computer and captured an image of the sun. She then pulled up a different solar image and said, This is from four centuries ago. The computer proceeded to compare the two images. Do you see that? Kayoko asked, pointing to the screen. Luminosity, pixel arrays, pixel probabilities, layer statistics. Every parameter is exactly the same. What does that prove? A toy telescope, a cheap image processing program, and you, an uninformed amateur? I shook my head. Pay no attention to those rumors. You're an idiot, she snapped, retracting the telescope and turning the car toward home. In the distance, I noticed a few other cars both above and below us. They hovered in the air just as we had, a telescope trained on the sun through every car window. Over the next few months, a terrible allegation swept like wildfire across the world. More and more people made it their business to observe the sun with the assistance of larger, more sophisticated instruments. An NGO even launched an array of probes toward the sun, which passed through their target three months later. The data transmitted by the probes finally confirmed the fact. The sun had not changed at all in the past four centuries. On every continent, the situation in the underground cities was volatile, like bubbling volcanoes building toward eruption. One day, heeding a decree from the coalition, Kayoko and I placed our son into a foster center. On the way home, we both sensed that the only tie that held us together was gone. As we neared the central plaza, we saw a man addressing a crowd. Others were distributing weapons to the citizens who had gathered around the speaker. Citizens! Earth has been betrayed! Humanity has been betrayed! Civilization has been betrayed. We are all the victims of a tremendous hoax. The sheer scale of this hoax would shock God himself. The sun is entirely unchanged. It will not explode. Not then. Not now. Not ever. It is the very symbol of eternity. What is explosive is the wild and insidious ambition of those in the coalition. They fabricated all of it just so they could establish their own tyrannical empire. They have destroyed Earth. They have destroyed human civilization. Citizens, citizens of conscience, take up arms and rescue our planet. Rescue human civilization. We will overthrow the coalition. We will seize control of the Earth engines and steer our planet from the cold depths of outer space back to its original orbit. Back to the warm embrace of the sun. Without a word, Kayoko stepped forward to accept an assault rifle from one of the people handing out weapons, joining the column of armed citizens. She did not look back she disappeared into the haze of the underground city, alongside the ranks of her neighbors. I just stood there. In my pocket, the medal for which my father had traded his life and loyalty was clenched in my hand, so tightly that its points drew blood. Three days later, rebellion broke out on every continent.
Wherever the rebel army went, the people rallied to its call. Few citizens still doubted that they had been deceived. Even so, I still joined the coalition army. It was not that I had any real faith in the government, but my family had served in the military for three generations. They had sown the seeds of loyalty deep in my heart, and to betray the coalition was simply unthinkable, no matter the circumstances. One after another, the Americas, Africa, Oceania, and Antarctica fell to the rebels as the coalition army drew back to defensive lines around the Earth engines in Eastern and Central Asia, ready to defend them to the death. The rebel army quickly surrounded these lines. Their forces overwhelmingly outnumbered the coalition forces, but because of the close proximity of the engines, the offensive made no progress for a long time. The rebel army had no desire to destroy the engines and thus refrained from deploying heavy weapons, giving the coalition a stay of execution. The two sides remained locked in a stalemate for three months. But after 12 field armies defected in succession, coalition defenses crumbled along all fronts. Two months later, with things looking bleak, the last 100,000 government troops found themselves besieged on all sides at the Earth Engine Control Center on the coast. I was a major in what remained of the army. The control center was the size of a mid-tier city, built around the Earth Navigation Bridge. A dead arm, seared by laser fire, had landed me in a cot in the combat casualty ward. It was there that I learned Kyoko had been killed in action in the Battle of Australia. Like the others in the ward, all day, every day, I would drink myself blind. We lost all track of the war raging outside, and we were indifferent to it. I do not know how much time had passed when I heard a voice bellow across the ward. You know why you've been reduced to this? You blame yourselves for standing against humanity in this war. So did I. As I turned my head to look, I saw that the speaker wore a general's star on his shoulder. No matter, he continued. We have one last chance to save our souls. The Earth Navigation Bridge is only three blocks away. We will take it and hand it over to the sane humans outside. We have done our duty to the Coalition, and now we must do our duty to humanity. With my good arm, I drew my pistol and followed the frenzied mass of able-bodied and wounded soldiers surging through the steel corridors toward the bridge. To my surprise, we met almost no resistance along the way. In fact, more and more people emerged from the complex maze of passageways to join us. Finally, we arrived before a metal gate so tall that I could not see the top of it. It rumbled open, and we charged into the Earth Navigation Bridge. Even though we had seen it countless times on television, everyone was still floored by the bridge's grandeur. It was difficult to judge the size of the space, as its dimensions were hidden by the huge holographic simulation of the solar system that dominated the room. The entire image was essentially black space that stretched infinitely in all directions. As soon as we came in, we were suspended in this blackness. Because the simulation was designed to reflect the true scale of the solar system, the sun and the planets were minuscule, like fireflies in the distance, but still distinguishable. A striking red spiral expanded out from the distant point of light that represented the sun, spreading like concentric red ripples on the surface of a vast black ocean. This was the Earth's route. At a point on the outer edge of the spiral, the route turned bright green, 
indicating the distance Earth had yet to travel. The green line swept over our heads. We followed it with our eyes until it vanished into the depths of a brilliant sea of stars, its end beyond our sight. Numerous specks of glittering dust floated through the black expanse. As a few of these motes drifted closer, I realized they were virtual screens, filled with scrolling streams of digits and curves. Then my gaze fell upon the Earth navigation platform, known to every human on the planet. It looked like a silvery-white asteroid floating in the blackness. The sight made it even harder to grasp the size of the place. The navigation platform itself was a plaza. It was now densely packed with over 5,000 people, including the leaders of the coalition, most of the Interstellar Emigration Committee that was responsible for implementing the voyage plan, and the last remaining loyalists. The voice of the chief executive rang out in the darkness. We could fight to the last, but we might lose control of the Earth engines. If that were to happen, the excess fissile material could burn through the entire planet or evaporate the oceans. Instead, we have decided to surrender. We understand the people. Humanity has endured 40 generations of bitter struggle and must endure 100 generations more. It is unrealistic to expect everyone to remain rational throughout it all. But we ask the people to remember that we, the 5,000 who stand here, from the chief executive of the coalition to the ordinary privates, kept our faith until the end. We know we will not see the day the truth is verified, but if humanity survives, future generations will weep over our graves. This planet called Earth will be an everlasting monument to our memory. The massive gate of the control center rumbled open again, and the last 5,000 takers emerged. They were then herded to the shore by rebel forces. Both sides of the road were jammed with people. The onlookers spat at the prisoners and pelted them with ice and rocks. A few of the masks on their thermal suits were shattered exposing the faces beneath to temperatures more than a hundred degrees below freezing. But even as they were numbed by terrible cold, they trudged on, fighting for every step. I saw a little girl pick up a chunk of ice and hurl it with all her might at an old man, the wild rage in her eyes searing through her mask. When I heard that all 5,000 of the prisoners had been sentenced to death, I felt it was too lenient. One death? Could one death repair the evil they had done? Could it make amends for the crime of perpetrating an insane hoax that destroyed both the earth and human civilization? They should die 10,000 times over. I suddenly recalled the astrophysicists who had forecast the explosion of the sun and the engineers who had designed and built the earth engines. They had passed away a century ago, but I truly wanted to dig up their graves and make them die the deaths they deserved. I felt truly thankful that the executioners had found a suitable method for carrying out the sentence. First, they confiscated the nuclear batteries that powered the thermal suits of every person sentenced to death. Then they deposited the prisoners on the frozen ocean and let the sub-zero conditions sap the life from their bodies. The most insidious, most shameful criminals in the history of human civilization stood clustered together a dark mass atop the ice. Over 100,000 people had gathered on the shore to watch. 
Over 100,000 jaws clenched in anger. Over 100,000 pairs of eyes burned with the same rage I had witnessed on the face of that little girl. By now, all the earth engines had been powered down, and the stars had blinked majestically into view over the ice. I could imagine the cold piercing their skin like daggers, the blood freezing in their veins, the life draining bit by bit from their bodies. A pleasant warmth ran through my body at the thought. As they watched the prisoners slowly succumb to the agonizing cold, the mood of the crowd on the shore began to lift, and they began to sing a cheerful rendition of my son. As I sang along, I gazed in the direction of a star that was slightly larger than the rest, its tiny disk shining with yellow light. The sun. O sun, my sun, mother of life, father of creation, bright spirit, a god above. Constant and eternal, we are but stardust in your orbit. And yet, like fools, we dared dream your doom. An hour passed. Out on the ice, those enemies of humanity still stood, but not one among them remained alive. Their blood had frozen in their veins. All at once, I lost my sense of sight. Several seconds passed before my vision began to recover, and the ice, the shore, and the crowd of onlookers gradually sharpened into focus. Finally, everything was clear again, even clearer than it had been before, in fact, because the world was enveloped in an intense white light. It was this abrupt glare that had blinded me a moment ago. The stars, however, did not reappear. Their radiance swallowed up, as if the cosmos had melted under the harsh light. The glare burst forth from a single point in space. That point had now become the center of the universe, and I had been staring right at it as it did so. A helium flash had occurred. The chorus of my son froze mid-song. The crowd on the shore stood transfixed, like the 5,000 corpses on the ice. They seemed frozen, as stiff and still as stone. The sun shed its light and heat upon the earth for one last time. On the surface, the dry ice melted first, rising in plumes of white steam. Then the sea began to thaw, and the layers of ice began to creak and groan as they were heated unevenly. Gradually, the light softened, and the sky took on a tinge of blue. Later, generated by the fierce solar winds, auroras appeared in the sky, great prismatic curtains of light fluttering across the heavens. The last taker stood firm atop the ice, 5,000 statues thrown into clear relief by the sudden dazzling sunlight. The solar explosion lasted only a short time. After two hours, the light rapidly weakened until it was extinguished altogether. A dim red sphere had replaced the sun. From our vantage point, it slowly swelled until it reached the size of the sun of old a strange memory from Earth's original orbit. It was so voluminous that its diameter exceeded the orbit of Mars. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Earth's constant companions, had been reduced to wisps of smoke by the intense thermal radiation. But it was no longer our sun, no longer emitting light and heat, 
It resembled a cold piece of red paper pasted onto the firmament, its muted glow merely a reflection of the surrounding starlight. This was the evolutionary fate common to all mid-sized stars, transformation into a red giant. Five billion years of majestic life were now a fleeting dream. The sun had died. Fortunately, we still lived. Chapter 4 The Wandering Era As I recall all of this now, half a century has passed. Twenty years ago, Earth sailed past Pluto's orbit and out of the solar system, continuing its lonely voyage into the vast, cold reaches of space. My last visit to the surface was a dozen or so years ago. I was accompanied by my son and my daughter-in-law, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl. She was pregnant at the time. When we arrived on the surface, the first thing I noticed was that I could no longer see the Earth engine's massive plasma beams, even though I knew the engines were still operating at full capacity. The Earth's atmosphere had vanished, leaving nothing to scatter the plasma's light. The ground was covered with strange translucent yellow-green crystals. They were made of solid oxygen and nitrogen, the remnants of our frozen atmosphere. Interestingly, the atmosphere had not frozen evenly across the surface. Instead, it had formed irregular mounds like hills. The frozen surface of the sea, once flat and smooth, now rose up into a fantastic crystalline landscape. Overhead, the Milky Way stretched motionless across the sky, as if it too had frozen. But the stars were bright, too bright to look at for long. The Earth engines would operate without interruption for the next 500 years, accelerating the planet to 0.5% of light speed. Earth would cruise at this incredible speed for 1,300 years. After it had completed two-thirds of its voyage, we would reverse the direction of the Earth engines, and Earth would enter a 500-year deceleration period. After 2,400 years of travel, Earth would finally reach Proxima Centauri. In another hundred years' time, it would lock into stabilized orbit around the star, becoming one of its satellites. I know I have been forgotten. This voyage wanders on and on. But call me when the time comes, when the east sees another dawn. I know I have been forgotten. Our departure is long past. But call me when the time comes, when men see blue skies at last. I know I have been forgotten. Our solar story is over now. But call me when the time comes, when blossoms hang from every bough. Every time I hear that song, warmth floods this stiff, aging body of mine, and these dry old eyes fill with tears. In my mind's eye, the three golden suns of Alpha Centauri rise above the horizon one after another, bathing everything in their warm light. The solid atmosphere has melted, and the sky is clear and blue again. Seeds planted 2,000 years ago sprout from the thawed soil, breathing new life into the earth. I see my great-grandchildren, 100 generations removed, playing and laughing on green grass. Clear streams flow through the meadows, 
filled with small silver fish. I see Kyoko bounding toward me across the green earth. She is young and beautiful, like an angel. Ah, earth. My wandering earth. That was the title story from Cixin Liu's forthcoming short story collection, The Wandering Earth. Thank you for listening to this season of Stories from Among the Stars. We hope you enjoyed it. You can pre-order The Wandering Earth and find The Three-Body Problem and The Dark Forest, all by Cixin Liu, wherever audiobooks are sold. We'll be back in your feed with the next season of Stories from Among the Stars later this year. Thank you for listening.